Take your Bibles, if you would, and let's turn to Job chapter 23. Job chapter 23. We'll be looking at the entire chapter this morning, but I want us to pay attention to Job 23 verse 10. Job 23 verse 10. But he, that is God, Job is speaking, but he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come out, I shall come forth, I shall come out as gold. But he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. This is God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that your word tells us your intent for our lives. In the sunny days, in the dark days, in the blue skies, and when it feels like there are no skies, thank you for telling us your intent for us. God, again, I beg you, help me get out of the way so that what you want said gets said no more, no less, for the glory of Christ and the good of his people. And the church said, Amen. Amen. Corey Ten Boom. Cornelia Arnalda Johanna. Ten Boom, Corey Ten Boom, was a watchmaker. She followed her father in the craft and vocation of watchmaking. Her father, Casper, her sister, Betsy. Corey Ten Boom lived in the Netherlands. They had a shop in Amsterdam. And when the Nazis invaded the Netherlands during World War II, Corey and the family began to give shelter to Jewish refugees. And then someone informed on them. And then the Nazis arrested them. And then they were put at the Ravensbrück concentration camp where her father, Corey's father, and sister perished. Corey survived. She wrote a book that some of you may be familiar with called The Hiding Place. It's a fascinating story of her family's efforts to save lives and how she found hope in God while at a place like Ravensbrook. And after the war, Corey would speak about her life and her story. 
And she would often hold up the backside of a piece of embroidery. And it was just really kind of ugly on the side she showed. It was hundreds of tangled threads. And people even thought she'd made a mistake. She was holding up the wrong side. But as she showed the audience the messy side, she'd ask, does God always give us what we ask for in prayer? Well, of course not, she'd say. No, sometimes the answer is no. And that's because God knows what we don't know. God knows everything. Look at this piece of embroidery, she'd say. There's just chaos. But then there's the other side, and she'd triumphantly flip it over. And there was that crown. That beautiful crown. Stitched in gold and silver and pearls. Symbolizing our crown of eternal life. And Corey would say, for now... All we know is the chaos, but God knows the crown. And one day we'll see the embroidery from his point of view. But for now, we simply see it from our point of view. And once we know, as he knows, we'll thank him for every answered and unanswered prayer. And we'll thank him for those unanswered prayers because we will know then that his unanswered prayer was an act of mercy. The chaos, the crown. Our view, God's view. Question, what will help me see the crown when all I feel is chaos? And the answer to that question is lament. Lament. Lament is a prayer of pain from a heart of trust. Lament assures me that on the other side of chaos is the crown. Lament gets me out of denial by acknowledging the reality of agony. Lament gets me to see life as it is, not as I would have it. And so lament pulls the pain close. Lament puts me in the foxhole with you. Lament is the opposite of dismissiveness and defensiveness and stubbornness and hard-heartedness. And lament gives me the empathy to weep with those who weep without judging whether or not they should be weeping. What does it take to get people to feel the pain of another person's tragedy? Lament. It's the language of King Jesus. Did he not say, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And so we are his ambassadors, his representatives, God making his appeal through us. And thus we must become fluent in this language of lament to represent our king so that we can comfort those who mourn. May nothing ever comfort you until Jesus comforts you. And lament brings the comfort of Christ to a hurting, aching heart. And lament breaks the silence. The language of lament expresses this cry of a heart that does not know what else to say. Lament teaches us to speak 
on God's behalf with mistreated people. And hear me on this one. Lament teaches mistreated people how to speak to God. And lament will unify us even when we disagree on the complexities which plague our country. And here's why. Though we may not agree on the solutions to the problems, much less what the problems are, lament unites us in who to turn to first. Lament. Lament is vertical prayer with horizontal effects. And what we've learned thus far in our series is that lament contains four parts. Remember what they are? Turn, complain, ask, and trust. Turn to God, complain to God, ask God, and trust in God. We learned that from Psalm 13, didn't we? You can also learn that if you look at Psalm 10. Or Psalm 97. Uh, Almost half the Psalms deal with lament. Turning, complaining, asking, trusting. And you know lament is never tidy. It's messy. It's raw. That's why I want you to look at Our text today in Job 23, whereas uh, about half of the Psalms are of lament, Job is lament. (laughs) It's just all lament. Turning and complaining and asking and trusting. It's all tangled up on that naughty side of the embroidery. And our text today in Job 23 teaches us how exhausted people need to speak to God. Is anybody here exhausted today? Anybody here just kind of, okay, I'm done with this. Yeah, me too. So how do I talk to God? I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you're here. Job 23 Teaches, exhaust, teaches an exhausted church how to talk to God. And Job 23 focuses on, on two parts, two of those four sections of lament. Complain and trust. Complain and trust. And so in, in Job 23... Relentless trust is wrapped in raw complaint. Here's the big idea. I want to front load it. Here we go. Uh, In the heart of Job's complaint is the precious gold of trust. There it is. In the heart of Job's complaint is the precious gold of trust. Job 23 Uh, 1 through 9 is complaint. And then Job 23, 11 through 17 is complaint. But in the heart of Job's complaint is verse 10. The precious gold of trust. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's talk about complaint first. Job 23, verses 1 through 3. Then Job answered and said, today also my complaint, there it is, 
Today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. Now, Job 23 begins the third of three conversation cycles between Job and his three best friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. So in Job chapters 1 and 2, God and the accuser, Satan, are in conference about Job. And the accuser asks God, does Job serve God for nothing? And, and his point is, no, he doesn't serve God for nothing. He serves God because it pays. Well, let's see. And so Job experiences just untold suffering. And I mean, imagine sitting at the graves of your children, and you're on the ash heap. You have, you, you've just really nothing, and you are diseased, and there's just strife all over. Imagine sitting at the graves of your children, and then you see your friends show up. You think, ah, you know, comfort is on the way. And, and Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar were sources of comfort until they opened their mouths. Yeah. And three conversation cycles occur. Job speaks, Eliphaz responds. Job speaks, Bildad responds. Job speaks, Zophar responds. That's cycle one. And this gets repeated and then three-peated. And basically, Job's friends inform Job that the reason why he's suffering is because he has sinned. There it is. They've just assumed Job's guilt. Have you ever been in a situation where your guilt is assumed? Have you ever been in a situation where you're not given the benefit of a doubt that someone just looks at the surface and then just makes a judgment and that's that? Well, that's what's going on here. And I mean... Job 23 begins the third and shortest cycle because by the time we get to Job 23, all of the issues are out on the table. The only difference is the volume gets turned up and the rhetoric becomes heated. For instance, in Job chapter 25, verse 6, when Bildad speaks, he just says, Job, you're a maggot. How's that for comfort? And then Job responds, oh, it's just... Deep sarcasm, 26.2. How you have helped him who has no power. How you have saved the arm that has no strength. The wonderful counselors you are. Oh, man. So, so in Job 23, Job doesn't even address Eliphaz. He, he just gives a groaning complaint. Oh, that I knew where I might find him. Where are you? God, show up. I, I've given you a subpoena to appear in court. Why won't you appear? And the emphasis of this complaint is about longing and yearning and desire. In Job's complaint is deep desire. And, and while Job 
uses the third person to address God. He's really talking to God. I, he doesn't even mention God's name. He just says him. The reader just assumes that the him is God. Think about this. Even when God has allowed this to happen to Job, Job still longs for him. Job is lost without God. He's in a maze without God. He can't get out. He's tangled in a net. And the, the more he moves, the more constricted he feels. If you can live without God, my fear is that you'll die without God. But if you can't live without God, if there's a brick in your gut because you are looking and longing and desiring, and if there's a brick in your gut because you can't find God, would you hear me? I believe that's evidence that you are his child. I believe that. True, true children of God feel terribly unhappy when they feel distant from God. That's Job. Look at verses 8 and 9. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. God, I want you. Earlier in the book of Job, Eliphaz boasted of a, of, a, of a mystical vision that he had of God. In Job 4.12, Eliphaz says, A word was brought to me stealthily, visions in the night, a spirit glided by my face. It was a mystical, experiential vision. And Job responds to that in Job 23, vision schmision. I don't want a mystical experience. I want God. I want to see God face to face. I want him to show up. Verse 5, I would know that he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Verse 7, there an upright man could argue with him and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. I want to see God face to face. I want to see God face to face. Now think about that for a minute. I want to see God face to face. That assumes you have a face. And is that not the meaning of life? That which God does to give you a face so that you will one day meet with Him to see His face. Job wants to see God face to face. He, he, he's a conflicted man. Because I want to see God face to face. And yet look at verses 15 and 16. I'm, but I'm terrified at his presence. Make up your mind. Is it, but that, isn't that what happens? Isn't that what happens when we're suffering and when we're struggling and we, we, when we're longing for God? And I, I want you, but I'm afraid of what's going to happen if I get my prayer answered. And I'm terrified as his presence. When I consider I'm in dread of him, God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. I don't I'm not sure. I want you, God, but I, do I what, you know? And, and do you see how conflicted he is? I, I mean, man, I'm... 
you ask me how my heart is at 7 a.m., and then, and then you ask me how my heart is at 10.30 a.m., and it, 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 there it is. There it is. And then ask me again at 2.30, and then ask me again at 6. And oh, Man, Com- that's complaint. Compl- complaint is a component of lament. And what I'm trying, I want, what I want you to see is that it's as messy as what Corey was telling us. It's just messy. It's raw, it's unfiltered, but it's biblical. It's biblical. One author put it this way. Should you ever decide that you want your prayers to be more biblical, I suggest you learn how to fight. Sign up for kickboxing or jujitsu or just find a good old-fashioned bar brawl. Socially distanced, of course. Give and take a few punches to the face. Roll around on the ground with another sweaty, wild-eyed opponent. Break your nose, blacken your eye, get mad, and wake up feeling like you got mauled by a bear. Then, after those happy experiences, you'll feel a little more prepared to pray biblically. Oh, I know, I know, I know. There are those sweet and gentle verses that Grandma stitched with needlepoint on the canvas and hung in front of the toilet. But there's a whole pack of passages that are too bloody. Some of you can't believe I just said that, right? That are too bloody, too snot-covered, too tear-stained, and too fist-clenched for pious embroidery. Job 23 is not pious embroidery. Job 23 is graffiti. (laughs) Angry graffiti spray-painted on heaven's high wall. But it's biblical. And do you know why? Because, get this now, Job's talking to God. Job's friends are talking about God. Job stays married to God and throws dishes at him. The three friends have a polite non-marriage with separate bedrooms and separate vacations. Job's friends want to master truths about God. Job wants to meet truth face to face. And and you can only lament like Job when the God with whom you fight is the God you trust. And so so your R-rated lament is no sign of weak faith. Rather, it's proof of bold trust. Trust, complaint, and trust in the heart of Job's complaint is the precious gold of trust. Verse 10, and he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come out. I shall come forth as gold. Lament involves complaint, and complaint leads to trust. And, and, and 
what's so beautiful about this passage is this tells us something about the nature of Hebrew poetry. In Hebrew poetry, the big idea of the passage is often right smack dab in the middle of the paragraph. And that's what we see here. Complaint on either side of trust in the bullseye is trust. Job trusts. Job trusts God's perception of the situation. He knows the way that I take. He knows, that literally, he knows his way I take. Meaning, Job trusts God, and he trusts that, he trusts that God knows what he's doing, even when Job doesn't know what God is doing. Job trusts that God sees a crown even when all Job sees is chaos. Just, just listen, listen to me. Just because you can't see a crown doesn't mean there's not a crown. And just because you can't see God doesn't mean he's not there. And it, and it doesn't mean he can't see you. We often talk as if our view of God carries the weight of the matter of whether we'll trust God or not. But I really wonder about that. You know, while the friends spoke about their view of God, which, by the way, later God condemned, Job continually spoke of God's view of him. For even in Job's most depressing moments, he never stopped trusting that God was watching him and thinking about him. He knows his way that I take. He knows the path that I'm on. He knows that I, he, he knows, and, and I know that I am under his sovereign surveillance. So Job lived between the tension of God's absence and God's surveillance. God is silent, but he's not gone. He's, it's dark out, but he's not distant. And I may not know, but I know he knows. And I trust that. He knows his way that I take. Job trusts God's perception of the situation. And what is that situation? Well, that's the second part. He knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, when he has tested me. So Job trusts God's perception. Job trusts God's painful process of refinement when he has tested me. At first, Job saw this as a tragedy, but time changes your perspective. Things you see one way, when they happen, you now see another way. Time has a way of maturing how you see what you see so that now you see your pain as a proving Job now sees his not knowing anything of chapters 1 and 2. Job, by faith now, sees his suffering the way the accuser and God put it together, even though he's never told. Job trusts. You see, God and the accuser had two different tests in mind. Satan wanted to see what Job was not. God wanted to show what Job was. Satan meant to destroy Job and discredit God. 
But God meant it for disclosure and development. Same test, two intentions. Satan's intent is to discredit. God's intent is to disclose. To disclose you so that you are seen for what you are. Are you as advertised? And if you're not, that you might become what you still need to be. So you see, with God, even a failed test succeeds if that failure leads to growth. Satan is the author of this test, but God intercepts what Satan authors, and he edits it and refines it for his glory and our good. And now it means something different. When he has tested me, Bahan, Bahan, to investigate the quality of an object to see if it is what it advertises itself to be. Satan and God met. God said, have you considered my servant Job? I have no one like him. No one. Blameless, upright, fears God, shuns evil. That's his testimony. Be careful. Be be careful about your testimony because your testimony can get tested. Right? It's been said that your test becomes your testimony, and that's true, but you will often be tested at the location of your testimony. God uses adversity to test Job's integrity. Isaiah 48.10 says, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I've tried you in the furnace of affliction. Don't be surprised if God uses affliction to try us. He's not the author of evil. He's the, he's the editor of it. So he's using this sickness. He's using this virus. I'm trying to help you see what's going on in a way that will help you live in a way that demonstrates the goodness and grace of God. God, God is using all of that's going on in our life today to to, to make us into what he means us to be. What kind of a person does God mean for me to be? What kind of a church does God mean for us to be? That's the point of the painful process. Trusting God's perception. Trusting God's painful process so that the ultimate product, perception, process, product, The ultimate product, I shall come out, come forth as what? Gold. Gold. I I love what what, uh, uh, my uh, former professor, uh, Warren Wiersbe, said about this passage. I love it. He says, gold never fears the fire. Because the fire only helps. The fire only helps. The fire of this pandemic, the fire of this contentious season, the fire that purifies. And what we don't want is to come out of this furnace the same way we went in. If I come out the way I came in, it's wasted. I don't want to waste this. I don't want to waste the furnace. I don't want to waste the heat. We ought to come out a different church than the way we went in. God wants us to shine like never before. In fact, that's the word picture of come out. I will come out. I will, it can also be translated, I will shine. I will shine 
like gold. God, I'm shining. I'm coming out better than I went in. The dross has been burnt up. And what's left is just pure gold. I'm coming out with an upgrade. Listen to me. Listen to me. God will never spare anything to get out of us what he hates. And he doesn't hate you. What he hates is sin. And when we go through difficult times of darkness and trial, it's because God loves us so much that he will spare nothing to get out of us what he hates in us. We're, we're, all, we're all imperfect. Everybody's imperfect. But there will be no imperfect people in heaven. So a lot of God's process of getting us ready for heaven is to burn the hell out of us. And that's what's going on here, church family. Do you see that? Will you respond in that way? Will you know that he's going to take the gold? And some of that gold came from mining camps. But other gold came from the scrap pile. Someone got tired of their gold pieces. They're ready to get rid of it and junk it. But a buyer pays the price for what someone else wants to get rid of. And when that buyer buys the scrap gold, it's been alloyed by other metals, and it can't be used as is. It's, it's, it's mixed. It's unusable. So the heat has to be turned up long enough for the impurities to burn it up. And after the impurities are taken out of that gold, then it's got to be shaped into gold bars. Shiny gold. So shiny that the refiner can see his face in the gold, you see. Face to face is what we want to see God with. But what God is going to do through Christ on the cross in his death, burial, and resurrection is to give us a new face. And that is the face of Jesus Christ. The face of his love. The face of his joy. The face of his endurance. We were scrap gold. And Jesus came and purchased us and put us in the fire. And turned up the fire. We have impurities. We need to grow up. And so he's going to put us over the heat. Gold never fears the fire. And you know why? Because the hand of Christ is on the thermostat. And the eye of Christ is on the clock. And if you're not in long enough, you won't grow up. And if you're in too long, you burn up. But you've got a Savior who's got his hand on the thermostat and his eye on the clock. And when he has tried me, Job says, I will come forth as gold. Now, folks, that's how to lament. Because in lament is complaint. And complaint leads to trust. In the heart of Job's complaint is the precious gold of what? What? Trust. Trust. When God wants to drill you and thrill you and skill you, when God wants to mold you to play the noblest part 
when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a part that all the world will stand amazed. Watch his methods. Watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. How he hammers and hurts and with mighty blows converts into trial shapes of clay which only God understands while the tortured heart is crying as it lifts beseeching hands. How God bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes. How he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses by every act induces to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. Amen.